Well, welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray, and I'm delighted to be back on the show, joining the incredibly knowledgeable Dr. Pete and my wonderful husband. Okay, so it's February uh, 21st, 2020. Uh, the second show this decade, as I mentioned last month, is a uh, new decade. Uh, but we are still able to uh, <laughs> entreat Dr. Pete to join us on the show to uh, share his wisdom. Last month, uh, very briefly, we were discussing resonant frequencies, uh, the effects on cells of frequencies. And I came across a lot of very interesting abstracts uh, done that were actually 19, sorry, 2019. And 2020, so even in the earliest parts of January, there are articles being posted on PubMed, uh, research articles and abstracts related to uh, electromagnetic frequency um, and uh, extremely low-frequency electromagnetic frequencies. Uh, And um, very exciting news because um, one of the main uh, studies that caught my eye was a treatment of breast cancer uh, where they were showing it was absolutely effective uh, and as an adjunctive therapy to uh, traditional uh, cancer management in breast cancer I would just like to say that it was part of a adjunctive therapy not the sole therapy as the uh, authors wanted to make sure they pointed out too um, but that it had very significant cell killing effects um, so last month uh, like I said that was the beginning of the show we opened it up and uh, we got quite a few calls in um, so didn't get a chance to get through some of the other very interesting articles on different pathologies that uh, this post EMF was being used to treat. And I know in the past uh, discussions and shows we'd uh, touched a little bit on rife therapy. Uh, we've definitely mentioned uh, vaccines, and I know Dr. Pete's uh, latest newsletter on vaccines in context is something else we'll get to uh, once we get through uh, some of the pathologies related to the abstracts on EMF and its treatment. Um, and then there are some other questions uh, that they have that are part and parcel of people asking questions and wanting to put them to Dr. Pete. Um, so it's a live show, folks, from 7 to 7.30. Uh, we basically interview Dr. P, ask him questions and uh, listen to what he has to say about the mechanisms uh, by which he understands the activity of certain things that we don't normally see as being relevant or being effective because it's just not the... Uh, it's not the way things are sometimes that um, when a drug comes out, it's given all these different uh, uh, treatments, uh, treatment uses, and actually turns out to be fairly negative. So um, he's got a very different perspective on a lot of things that we would see as just headlines and advertising uh, and goes certainly into the science of it to show and explain why it's not a good thing. So, uh, Dr. Pete, let's um, introduce you to the show. You here? Hi, Dr. P. Okay. So, as always, for people who maybe haven't heard your name or know anything about you, uh, we'll definitely at the end of the show give out your uh, web details for people to find more about you. But would you just give an outline of your academic and professional background? Um, I went from, uh, after graduating from college and <clears throat> getting a master's degree in uh, humanities, uh, and studying uh, linguistics for several years, I decided to study uh, brain biology for a PhD. And when I got to the University of Oregon, I uh, quickly decided that uh, brain biology was a dogmatic 
topic at the time, and I looked around and found reproductive physiology was actually doing empirical science. So that's what I did my dissertation on, reproductive physiology and the changes aging makes in the energy metabolism of the reproductive organs. Okay, very good. Okay, for people that are listening uh, from 7.30 to 8 p.m., we take callers live on the air. The number, if you live in the area, or even if you don't live in the area, let's just give out the whole number, so no matter where you are, uh, 707-923-3911. So from 7.30 on, callers are invited to call in, 707-923-3911. And Dr. B, I love the way that you can describe your educational background in a slightly different manner every month. It's just wonderful. Thank you. So you said that just very briefly going back to what you said about the developmental biology or reproductive biology, it was empirical based still. So it hadn't uh, been swallowed up by the the machine at Um, that point. uh, Yeah, the the professor, the main professor in female uh, reproduction, uh, Arnold Soderwall, uh, had... uh, been working in the field uh, way back in the 40s, and he was one of the early people to test the effects of vitamin E on on reproduction. Uh, In the 1930s and 40s, it was considered a a uh, sex-promoting vitamin or almost a hormone, and he was one of the people that showed that its effect on increasing fertility took place by being an anti-estrogen. The older an animal got, the uh, earlier it became infertile. He found that increasing the dose of vitamin E steadily with aging, he kept the animals uh, from miscarrying uh, well into uh, old middle age. Uh, And uh, I I continued that research and found that Uh, It was partly acting uh, by way of improving the production of uh, progesterone Mm -hmm. uh, as well as lowering the effect of estrogen. Interesting. And I also remember you telling me about those flamingos in the African Rift Valley that don't age reproductively because Uh, they have so much CO2 from not only the elevation but from the non-PUFA algae they're eating. Um, no, no one is really sure, but I, I think the, the high carbon dioxide environment is very likely a big part of it. Uh, their the usual mortality uh, curve—it's uh, a semi-plateau uh, up until middle age, and then it, it crashes, and the, the, the mortality rate <clears throat> per year for most organisms increases uh, rapidly after a certain age. Uh, and with the flamingos, uh, it seems that all through a, a period of their whole lifespan, uh, the uh, annual mortality continues at just about the same rate by accidents mainly. <laughs> and that they they can breed up until they die from an accident, right? Uh, apparently, yeah. Wow. Very very briefly, when you were um, when you were doing your PhD, did what forms of vitamin E did they know of then? I'm not saying it was so many hundreds of years ago, but um, you know, 40 years ago or whatever, uh, had I, they discovered them all? Or um, I, I found a bottle of the very old stuff in the freezer in the lab <laughs> in 1968 or so, 
Uh, it had been there for decades. And it was a, a very, very viscous material uh, and a, a light amber color. Uh, and uh, I tested it uh, against uh, uh, some of the uh, quinones, comparing uh, uh, benzoquinone, for example, uh, reacting it uh, with vitamin E uh, and uh, uh, doing a, a combination a staining experiment. Uh, I, I got chemical reactions that that showed that the uh, sensitivity uh, of the quinone uh, reaction was very vivid uh, in that old sample. And, and uh, the newer samples, uh, uh, so, so-called pure vitamin E, I haven't been able to see that same reaction uh, that I got around 1970 <laughs> using the very old stuff. Is that any, anything to do with its antioxidant uh, um, effect? I, no, no, it was uh, a, a really a, a very different kind of a reaction. Was it? Where did they get that vitamin E from? How did they process it? Um, that, that was bought from Sigma Chemical Company. Mm, yeah. um, but it was uh, fairly typical at the time. It was very highly refined. It was the highest grade available at the time. Uh, but at that time, uh, all vitamin E uh, was fairly uh, brown-colored and uh, very, very thick. And uh, I think uh, some of the studies suggested that it was a waxy, highly saturated, uh, long-chain fatty acid uh, that was part of the uh, endurance-promoting antioxidant effect, uh, not the simple tocopherol itself. So it makes a big difference what form of vitamin E they're using to test and coming up with these results. Does that mean that we need to be careful when we're supplementing with vitamin E? Um, yeah, lots of it now. Uh, even uh, uh, 10 or 20 years ago, uh, the majority of it was highly diluted with uh, soybean oil. Highly unsaturated, exactly what uh, my professor found was uh, the uh, antagonistic effect, it, it uh, protected uh, against the uh, pro-aging effect of the polyunsaturated fats. So if your vitamin E is thin and liquid, then it's probably not a good vitamin E. If it's thick and viscous, then can we assume that that's a better quality? Uh, I think so. All right, well, good. That's a little bit of a uh, digression, but that, uh, very interesting nonetheless because I was looking at vitamin E just last month and uh, wanting to get some feedback about uh, the best source of vitamin E. Uh, very quickly, do you have any... Uh, would you speak to that? What you think is a good... What makes a good quality vitamin E supplement? Um, I think the, the mixture of the uh, uh, isotopes or the... the, the, the um, non-racemic uh, natural uh, forms uh, alpha uh, and and gamma are probably uh, the most important but I, I think the, the mixture as it occurs in nature is much better than any of the synthetics uh, DL alpha has been sold for a long time because it's 
cheap to make synthetically. Okay. So what about I mean, wheat germ oil is one of the main sources for it, right? But you would not advocate that given... Um, it, it's very full of polyunsaturated right, fat. Right. Uh, I, I uh, tried some of it in the 1970s, and it, that caused a, a choking <laughs> sensation when you took just a little bit of it. So you're recommending that you take a mixed tocopherol supplement of vitamin E and not just an isolated D-alpha tocopherol? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the... In the 1940s, uh, the anti-estrogen quality that was identified from from the 1930s, uh, an anti-clotting and anti-estrogen effect uh, was very clearly identified. But with the rise of the estrogen industry starting in 1940, that uh, property, (laughs) the idea that vitamin E could be very pro-fertility, it was the main fertility vitamin, and at the same time, purely anti-estrogenic. That really uh, put a crimp in the yeah, estrogen right. advertising yeah. <laughs> idea. And they were, uh, I, I think, a major factor in creating the, the doctrine uh, that vitamin E's action is as an uh, antioxidant. And the... Uh, uh, the vegetable oil industry at the same time was trying to sell the idea uh, that uh, seed oils are edible. And uh, in feeding them to animals, uh, they were finding that animals became sterile uh, on a high intake of, of the various seed oils, uh, polyunsaturated. Sterile and fat. Right, didn't they put on weight, too? Didn't they find uh, uh, that farmers could give the animals uh, Yeah, high? but, but the mo- the, when they had a really high proportion, they became sterile and uh, the brain deteriorated. Okay. Uh, Low the energy. gonads in the brain were the first to deteriorate. Uh, and uh, that my professor, for example, uh, identified that as an estrogen-promoting effect. Uh, that has continued to be confirmed that estrogen increases the accumulation of polyunsaturated fats in the body and uh, increases uh, their activity at, at any one moment. And those fats simultaneously are increasing uh, the effect of estrogen. It's a vicious, uh, vicious circle, huh? Yeah, so the, the anti-estrogen effect was uh, uh, identical to the anti-PUFA effect, but uh, both the food, the seed oil industry and the estrogen industry found it very convenient to uh, sell the idea that vitamin E is merely an antioxidant. So from the 1940s on, uh, D-alpha-tocopherol was identified as how to measure the uh, value of vitamin E because it was the most antioxidant. And so uh, uh, until just fairly recently, the only uh, uh, component that they measured was the alpha component, but it turns out that the gamma and others have uh, very distinct, more important biological activities, including uh, opposition to estrogen. Cool. Cool. Excellent. All right, good. Well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad we accidentally went there. 
that's a good uh, a good breakdown of vitamin E and its use for sure. Okay, so you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor, KMUD, Garberville, 91.1 FM. Uh, from 7.30 until the end of the show, 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with questions related or unrelated to this month's continuing subject of ELF, uh, extra, extremely low frequency electromagnetic frequencies uh, for healing. Uh, we have a bunch of abstracts here that I just want to get through with um, very specific known pathologies just to get Dr. Pete's insight onto the activity of how these frequencies could have such a profound effect. I know we've mentioned rife therapy in the past and um, for want of not understanding it as well as I'd like to, I certainly want to believe rife is a very uh, a realistic approach. Uh, they certainly wanted to put the man in prison and uh, take away all of his research material uh, back when Raymond Reif was doing his research. So it uh, probably sounds like a, something they wanted to keep covered up, um, not to get too conspiracy theorists about it. Anyway, the number is 707-923-3911. That's 707-923-3911. Dr. Raymond Peach joining us live on the air. Uh, so, Dr. Pete, I just wanted to cover quickly, I, I don't want you... Uh, I don't want you getting bored with any of the subject matter. Sometimes I, I feel that it, we kind of drudge through some of the subjects you're not that interested in, perhaps, but uh, without going too far in that direction. I looked at um, some articles last month for the extremely low-frequency electromagnetic uh, spectrum and these electromagnetic fields on various pathologies, and we talked about the breast cancer one that showed definite, conclusive, um, positive benefits on breast cancer. I saw another one on... And it surprised me here because I know you've always mentioned high altitude being very good for people and the increased CO2 and it being part of a longevity uh, formulation, if you like, uh, high altitude, reducing stress, improving CO2 and improving longevity. But this was a, a test that was done on rats um, and they were... I guess probably because the ulcers were, stim- were, were, were simulated. They weren't actually, I don't know, I think they were put in a hyperbaric chamber at, um, you know, different partial pressure of oxygen to simulate higher altitude. But it was a uh, high altitude stress ulcer healing uh, in rats. So they gave these rats uh, ulcers uh, and they said that basically it was a hypoxia. That was a, a part and parcel of the reason they got these ulcers and that it was fairly prevalent among people uh, at high altitude but um do you have uh, do you have any idea first i guess about high altitude and ulcers ulcer formation uh, in that particular experiment they were using restraint stress to produce the ulcers and it happened to be combined with high altitude so i don't think anything can be inferred from that study uh, for humans so the stress was that they were restraining the rats um, yeah, uh, if you're uh, being suspended by your tail at high altitude. <laughs> it doesn't matter what altitude, you're going to be stressed out. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, all right, I just wanted to bring it out. They they said that um, the low-frequency uh, pulse electromagnetic fields uh, could penetrate the stomach tissue, and they said they relieve the symptoms of the um, stomach ulcer. Uh, and promote the regeneration of disturbed tissues. And they said that there was a clinical potential for this therapy for ulcer treatment. Uh, okay, well, maybe not dwell on that one too much. And how about uh, this other study here? It was called, it's entitled The Neuroprotective Effects of Low-Frequency Pulse Electromagnetic Fields in Ischemic Stroke. 
Uh, and this, again, I think is probably part and parcel of reperfusion or reducing the inflammatory sequelae that happens as a result of reperfusion after an ischemic event. Uh, I think people, I think about people that have heart attacks uh, or coronary, uh, yeah, coronary artery occlusion and heart attacks and then benefiting from using hawthorn extract as an herbal medicine and definitely uh, has shown to reduce the ischemic, uh, the size of the ischemic tissue post event and um, promote healing. Um, they, they mentioned some of the uh, inflammatory cytokines that are uh, reduced by the treatment and I think uh, behind uh, those particular uh, uh, protective changes, I, I think uh, there's likely to be an increase uh, of uh, some of the basic uh, uh, defensive factors such as heat, heat shock protein. Right. Yeah. Uh, any kind of stress will bring on these stabilizing proteins. Uh, and uh, I, I suspect that those are behind the the various uh, reductions of the inflammatory uh, uh, mediators. Uh, another uh, uh, acute uh, stress-induced uh, protective factor is hypoxia-induced factor. Uh, that tends to come up at the same time as the heat shock proteins. Uh, and these uh, help uh, nerve cells, for example, uh, to get through intense stress, which could be uh, glucose deprivation or o oxygen deprivation, either one. Right, because these I have to I have to be a little careful here when I look at these things and 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 maybe take them out of context. But it's a little bit like inflammation. You know, it's not all bad. Inflammation is necessary to achieve certain end results, but obviously, out of control inflammation is where we discuss inflammation as being negative. Okay, all right, let's see here. The other article uh, I'm looking at, I think that's, actually, we can probably skip this one. This is part and parcel of um, hypoxia-induced neuronal cell death. Um, they've mentioned here that uh, there was various uh, signal, pr signal molecules that were involved in inflammation uh, and various proteins that were secreted in response to inflammation and that this um, pulse electromagnetic uh, fields could mitigate the effects of this. I think I'm probably more interested in how the mechanism by which sound waves, and this is again, it kind of harks back to rife therapy and disrupting uh, cancer cells or indeed bacteria uh, that rife was experimenting with and how um, the frequency, and I think we have to make analogies here to things like uh, I don't know, the Clifton Suspension Bridge uh, swaying in the wind because of the harmonics that were produced by the wind blowing through the cabling and how that frequency and that resonance became very destructive uh, and destructive and, and involved the bridge failing. But how how these electromagnetic fields generate this disruptive event to become healing, uh, you know, for, in terms of inflammation and how that actually works? Do you have... Do you have any insight into how that may actually, um, you know, may actually be physically provable? I mean, I, I, I didn't really look at articles in terms of actually outlining the science of it. Just I was just very excited to see articles referring to people's disease uh, and especially bone treatment, bone remodeling. It was very conclusive. But how how they uh, how this activity could actually be a physical a physical event? Um, uh, 
the uh, research of uh, Robert Becker uh, in uh, biological electrical uh, activity, uh, he found that uh, organisms uh, are uh, responsive to extremely weak electromagnetic signals, uh, pulsations in, in the Earth's uh, uh, electromagnetic uh, field. And uh, older uh, research uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, we're finding that uh, all sorts of organisms uh, govern their metabolic rate uh, by uh, changes picked up from the electromagnetic field. Uh, currently, uh, the doctrine is that it's simply the light and dark uh, changes that, that are uh, queuing in uh, the expression of certain genes appropriate for night or, or daytime. But in this older research, they would put uh, the organism in sealed chambers out of sight of uh, the outside changes of night and day. And some of the uh, changes persisted even in uh, holes in the ground, mine shafts. And uh, uh, plants, for example, that folded their petals uh, uh, during the night, uh, uh, some of these plants were taken down and they uh, could still detect the changes of day and night until they were 60 feet below the surface. So there are some very penetrating electromagnetic fields that are crucially important for the cycles of plants. And the current dogma that it's nothing but daylight and nighttime are really trying to cover up that extreme sensitivity to, to weak fields and how important it is that we're being bombarded with polluting electrical rhythms. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a little bit, and I've got one or two more abstracts I quickly want to look at, but I wanted to bring up the subject again, probably not for too long, but just to bring it up again, the whole 5G rollout of wireless internet that's taking over Europe and it's obviously mounting opposition to it, but we'll go there in a little bit. I had another article here, and it caught my eye. It was for the treatment of Alzheimer's. Um, and they were saying, and actually we got a little bit more specific here, and they were using uh, 5 hertz and 90-minute uh, cycles uh, of 5 hertz. And they said that there was a definite improvement in cognitive ability. So for those Alzheimer's patients that are definitely declining cognitively, they, they, they saw a definite improvement uh, using that. And they've... Um, they said during the abstract here, they gave, did give a little bit more information. They were talking about uh, tissue regeneration uh, because of the ability to st stimulate cell proliferation and immune functions uh, via the specific uh, heat shock protein uh, family of heat shock proteins and, and, and how that, um, I guess, that probably plays into the neuro uh, neurofibrillary tangles and those kind of proteins that get deranged uh, in Alzheimer's. So that was quite interesting. And then the last thing I wanted to cover uh, was a... Well, actually, did you want to see? Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, well, this this next one, again, is just a uh, another article here uh, about 
bacterial infections that antibiotics are not able to treat anymore, so kind of a drug-resistant bacteria-type scenario, um, where they've used electromagnetic fields and uh, basically blocked uh, things like tumor necrosis factor and transcription factor kappa beta, and they have basically been able to prevent the previously untreatable bacterial infection from getting out of control and have actually been able to slow it down to a point where they're saying that this um, continuous exposure to pulse electromagnetic field at 5 hertz demonstrated significant changes in the down regulation of all those inflammatory cytokines that would be part and parcel of breaking down the cell uh, and damaging the tissues and all the sequelae that uh, inflammation brings with it and all the damage that it brings with it. So that's pretty, pretty cool. So, Dr. Pete, would you recommend a practical approach to using these ELF and um, various pulsed EMF treatments? I don't don't think there has been enough research. It's clear that these acute treatments can stimulate increased blood circulation and these defensive heat shock protein and, and hypoxia-induced factor, uh, which are defensive. But uh, the, the subtler things, uh, long-range uh, development course, uh, I, I don't think there's enough information yet. Uh, and there's very little interest in following up research that was done uh, 40 or 50 years ago on sound, for example. Uh, uh, the... the Dogma says that uh, ordinary uh, uh, speaking uh, uh, frequency uh, sound waves uh, at that intensity uh, couldn't possibly uh, be interacting with uh, cell chemistry, but uh, several experiments have demonstrated that, in in fact, just um, moderate uh, volume uh, music or or speech uh, vibrations uh, affect the activity uh, of uh, muscle enzymes. ATPase, for example, was one that was tested, and uh, the pitch A440 cycles Mm -hmm. uh, was found to uh, distinctly activate uh, that particular enzyme. Uh, Each enzyme probably has its own uh, responsive frequency, but uh, that was contrary to uh, standard uh, uh, biochemical uh, cell function, uh, and so it was uh, totally neglected. Uh, ATP was found to uh, respond uh, uh, to, to um, musical frequencies. Uh, that's another uh, violation of, of standard uh, physical chemical. So we're supposed to speak to each other and hear voices uh, uh, yeah. and listen to music. And, and speak kind words rather than shouting and screaming. I know. Have they, have they done <laughs> um, just, tests I, on the various uh, pitch of the voice? I, I, yeah, the, the pitch affects enzyme activity. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I can believe it completely without having to see any proof. It's just the, just the concept of... Uh, well, just hearing a baby cry well, is enough yeah, that to put anyone or, on edge. Yeah, or people that get in road traffic, uh, you know, situations where they're just 
being loud and obnoxious or you know all of that i can't see that as being as being creative or healing in any way so i always see it as being inflammatory and destructive it's all part of that uh, screaming and shouting cycle okay so let's let's hold it there a second uh you're listening to ask your doctor kmud garberville 91.1 fm uh, from now until 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with questions related or unrelated to this month's subject uh, of the closing subject here of um, electromagnetic fields and uh, healing you know, for different uh, hertz uh, time frequencies and different times. It's all out there on the Internet if you want to look at it, folks. It's pretty exciting stuff. And there's 2019 and 2020 publications in, res- I'll say, quote-unquote, respected medical journals, but they are uh, on PubMed, and you can see the various journals that have uh, printed out the or put these uh, abstracts out there for peer review and they've actually shown up as articles so the number here is 707-923-3911 dr raymond pete joining us and we do have two callers on uh, on the line so let's take this first caller caller you're on the air where are you from and what's your question hello is this me yeah you're on the air what's your question where are you from caller i'm calling from garberville um and I, I love the conversation. Um, I'm wondering where it's going in general as far as how much um, individuals need to deal with and how much is actually medically relevant. Um, I've been dealing with a, a chronic problem for a while that pushes me to the, my limits of uh, mental ability uh, because of past uh, traumatic brain in, in, uh, injury. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder what Dr. Pete has to say about um, organic damage to one's brain as far as any of this new research goes. Dr. Pete, are you able to hear that clearly? I'm not getting it too clear here, but... I got the general idea about how... I can't hear you at all. ...how much repair happens to organic brain damage. Well, no, what I think he was asking is um, this gentleman has organic brain damage, and he's asking how mu- much revel- relevance... Well, no, what I think he was asking is... Oh, sorry, we're having a lot of feedback from the he caller. Needs, the listener needs to turn his radio down when he speaks to okay. us. Yeah. Okay, did you hear that, listener? If you could... T- uh, I, I unfortunately couldn't hear the answer otherwise, so I had to get close to my radio. Okay. Uh, okay, so just uh, one, once more, uh, caller, you, you are suffering with traumatic brain injury, is that correct? I'm... You sound so distant. I'm, I'm sorry. I yeah, I don't know what's. Hear your response. Yeah, I'm. I'm not too sure either. Okay, but what I think he's asking mm-hmm. is, is any of this EMF or ELF frequencies mm-hmm. applicable to brain damage, Doctor Pete? And he wanted to know if you thought that that could help his brain damage. Um, I, I think the random. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 the, the white no, I'm hearing all of you now. Um, I'm nowhere near my radio. What I was possibly asking is, um, what advice would you have for somebody who realizes that there is damage? Hello. I, 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 I think um, when when the brain 
has uh, any uh, inefficiency uh, from from whatever cause, it's more susceptible uh, to interference uh, from being around a broadcast station, for example. Uh, the the healthier the brain is, the higher its threshold is to that kind of uh, uh, pollution. And uh, the healing influence of, of the natural hormones proceeds at, at any age and in any starting condition. Uh, in traumatic uh, brain injury, for example, they found that uh, progesterone mm -hmm. and vitamin D yeah. uh, are both of them uh, extremely helpful for uh, facilitating uh, repair, keeping down uh, the inflammatory processes uh, that would uh, amount to something like a scar formation rather than a creation of new functioning nerve circuits. Uh, uh, if, if, if I might interject just because I'm only barely understanding half of this because of the weird connection. I'm nowhere near my radio, but he seems to be saying something about um, progesterone and vitamin D um, as being helpful for uh, brain function. Yeah, that's correct. If you if you look online, you'll find lots of articles uh, published by credible universities and scientists engaged in traumatic brain injury as a subject specifically mentioning progesterone being very supportive and very uh, anti-inflammatory. So as a, as a layman's question, um, where do you get progesterone? Is, is that uh, something that would be prescribed or is that something that one could find on their own? Or You can find vitamin D and progesterone online. Yeah, what I heard was you can find vitamin D and progesterone online. Yes. Correct. You can find both of those in a good health food store too. So As a supplement. There's, yeah, to there's, take. Nothing, uh, there's nothing restricted about them. And there might be three or four doctors in the country yeah. who are willing to prescribe yeah. those things, but yeah. it isn't necessary to have a prescription for them. Yeah. And also, Dr. Pete, were so, you recommend... So where, does, where does the, if I might ask, uh, where does the progesterone come from? It's usually from um, wild yam. It's synthesized from wild yam as a starting material. It, it's the same molecule that your brain man manufactures. Uh, the brain has the highest concentration of any tissue in the body of progesterone. It, it, it's an essential brain-stabilizing molecule. Okay, I think we should uh, wrap this one up and move on to the next uh, caller who's waiting. I appreciate your questions, and uh, hopefully you were able to hear uh, what we were trying to say. Uh, but next caller, caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Are you there, Carla? I see the lights are flashing. And well, they are, first of all. But my main question is to all three of you, what do you and I'll take my answer off the air, um, what do you know, if anything, about Dr. Hilda Clark's machine? Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that. Right. In terms of um, uh, Rife. I'm sorry, we're having like, a lot of um, feedback here. I think Hulda Clark's apparatus was a simple direct current 
uh, a device, uh, which is uh, in Robert Becker's research, he found that he could uh, promote and normalize, uh, promote nerve regeneration and uh, establish normal function when nerves had been cut. Uh, but the use that Hulda Clark uh, made of her direct current device, uh, I don't think there was any research supporting the things she claimed for it. There we go. <laughs> okay, uh, let's take this next caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Hi, yes, I'm calling from Washington, Tacoma region, and I'm calling on behalf of my husband since he wasn't able to call in due to work. He works in the medical field and was recently denied a influenza okay. vaccination. Okay. Okay. Hi, okay, for some reason we're hearing the engineer Hi. talking to... So, uh, um, he works in the medical field and he was recently denied an influenza vaccination exemption request um, by his hospital's immunization exemption appeals committee, despite the hospital having a written policy that allows employees with strongly held personal beliefs against vaccination to simply wear a mask instead of receiving the flu shot. My question to Ray Pete is, since the, these healthcare workers have a compulsory annual flu vaccination with toxic adjuvants, are there any changes that you would recommend to such people to their diet or supplementation regimen around the time of vaccination in order to mitigate the effects of adjuvants on systemic inflammation? Uh, for example, is it safe or effective to increase aspirin intake in order to minimize cytokine production? Yeah. Interesting. So, good. Good, good question. Um, we were going to cover adjuvants uh, specifically in Dr. Pete's uh, polio article, but Dr. Pete, would you speak to that? Did you hear that clearly? Um, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, the same things that will protect you against uh, any, any injury from radiation to uh, uh, trauma or, or bacterial uh, uh, toxins, uh, they can be used uh, to, to protect against uh, the aluminum particulate matter and the other uh, random proteins that are contaminating uh, vaccines. Uh, aspirin is an important one. Uh, uh, progesterone and the, uh, the, the youth-associated steroids, pregnenolone and DHEA and progesterone in particular, mm -hmm. are, are protective against uh, the, the whole uh, range of inflammatory processes. Okay. So and, I mean, what kind of doses would you recommend on uh, aspirin, like a couple grams a day? And then you'd want to be taking vitamin K with that? Or would um, you think a low dose would be sufficient? Um, I, I think um, the, the day or two before and the following uh, vaccination, I, th I think uh, probably uh, uh, 500 milligrams per day would be good. And that would require some um, vitamin K as well, vitamin K2. Um, yeah, vitamin K is, is another generally protective uh, factor. Uh, uh, calcium, uh, sodium, magnesium, uh, uh, these have a basic anti-inflammatory function when you get them uh, through good uh, foods. Okay, so did that um, did that address your question, ma'am? It definitely did. Thank you for your time, Dr. Repeat. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for Thank calling in. Thank you for in. your call. Okay, so those people listening, uh, this is Ask Your Reb Doctor on KMUD Garberville, 91.1 FM. From now until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in, and that number is 707 
707-923-3911. Once again, 707-923-3911. Uh, we do have another caller here lined up, so let's take this next caller. Call away from, what's your question? Hi, I'm uh, in New Harris, and this is Kim. I wanted to share that there is a site online, Dr. Pollock, P-A-W-L-U-K.com. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you, Dr. Pollock, you said, yeah. Well, the engineer is talking to someone now, and apparently it's, it's cutting into you, so I'm not Hi, sure what's happening. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you again, so just say that again. Hello? Yes, Kim, we can hear you now. The engineer is not speaking, so we can hear you. Hey, it's interesting. I can't really hear you guys, but I wanted to tell you, drpollock.com, P-A-W-L-U-K, Pollock, he has done extensive research on pulsed electromagnetic fields, and his latest uh, blog talks about traumatic brain injury. It was just posted February 10th, 2020. Good. Um, you can sign up for his articles um, at drpollock.com. Well, good. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's uh, quite uh, very timely. Bye-bye. Well, hopefully the first caller can... Yeah, hopefully the first call. Go online and look up <laughs> Dr. Pollock. Okay, so for all of those of you who are listening, I'm very sorry about the uh, trouble with uh, feedback and not hearing us properly. I know it has been a question in the past, and some people have been pretty vociferous about it. Uh, okay, so let's take this next caller. Caller, you're on the airway from, and what's your question? Hello, how are you guys? Doing good. How are you? What's your Hello? question? Where are you from? Hello. <laughs> Hi. We go again. Hello, caller. We can hear you. How are you folks doing? Good. What's your um, question? I have a uh, I have a question. Uh, first, I just want to say, have you guys ever heard of Dharma Singh Khalsa MD? No. He has a. Um, I can't really hear you, but he has a, a book called uh, "Food is Medicine" or "Food is Medicine," and uh, which I haven't read yet, and I've read a little bit as "Meditation as Medicine." Hello. Hi. We're, we can still hear you. Okay. So, what's your question? Are you talking to me? Yeah, we're, 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 we heard part oh, of your... Oh, yeah, yeah. Somebody just told me I was going to be next. Okay. Um, the, the, the Dharma Singh calls the MD. He talks about uh, how when you meditate and your tongue hits the roof of your mouth, it releases amino acids to your brain and helps rebuild your cells. It releases amino acids from your brain. And... Um, it's been real helpful for me for healing uh, uh, bone injuries. But um, the question I have is how does um, spices, how, how do spices help our digestive system? Like, do they help our cells take in nutrients? and stuff like that. I could take my uh, answer off the line. Thank you. Okay. I think, Dr. Pete, you, uh, you want to answer that probably with a, uh, lots of spices, a allergenic-type uh, response. But uh, what do you think about spices and nutrient uptake? Um, oh, yeah, the, the idea that uh, anything stimulating your appetite, uh, your nerves, your, your brain is in control of your digestive system, uh, that was... Uh, Pavlov's uh, basic research, uh, seeing how how the brain manages the whole digestive process, uh, and and if you uh, have negative thoughts, anxiety, uh, you'll 
have digestive problems and uh, the spices that, that stimulate uh, salivation, for example, uh, will stimulate secretion in your stomach and small intestine and uh, make everything uh, digest uh, optimally. But some spices uh, happen to be allergenic for, for some people, so uh, you have to be cautious. Well, you have to experiment and find out. And also, just like chili or capsicum, that increases blood flow, so that can improve digestion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but in general, uh, the, the caller was asking about spices as uh, aids to nutrient absorption, and I think uh, what you've mentioned about people that have malabsorption syndrome, for example, is when they're not actually producing enough bile from the liver or they're not stimulated to release uh, you know, pepsin or any of these other digestive enzymes. There are certainly digestive enzymes that can work but obviously there's plenty of herbs that do stimulate secretion of uh, salivary enzymes as well as digestive enzymes and increase hydrochloric acid and that is all part and parcel of nutrient absorption and a lot of these would be termed um, spices so things that would be uh, aperitifs uh, things like cinnamon uh, ginger uh, cloves uh, these are definite spices but i also recognize that there are people that have definitely um yeah, sensitive to those and they can cause other symptoms. But. Well, bitter bitter herbs are very useful at yeah. increasing the digestion, the yeah. digestive enzymes and increasing absorption of nutrients and increasing stomach acid and of course people that are low thyroid will have a decrease in all of the the enzymes and the um, digestive secretions needed for absorbing nutrition. The bitters work on multiple levels uh, stimulating your nerves Right. And some of them uh, actually improve mitochondrial energy production. Uh, some of them have systemic uh, sedative and stabilizing effects. Uh, it can be very important to your general health. Yeah, good. Things like gentian, wormwood, uh, any of the... Uh... We've started giving our daughter century. <laughs> yes, century. Which is Centauri. a little bitter. It's a little yeah. Uh, clover. Yeah. All right, excellent. Uh, there is one more caller. Let's uh, let's take this next caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Yeah, my question relates to the topic of the day. Um, Dr. P, were you referring um, in your earlier discussion on energy to, to scalar energy, which ultimately can be, you know, it doesn't really degrade. It's been around since, I guess, Tesla, you know, developed it. Um, essentially also known as zero-point energy and the health benefits, I guess, as I understand it, you know, in a nutshell, or that it enables the cells to operate at uh, you know, the appropriate frequencies, which I guess are in the 70 to 90 millivolt range. Is, is that what you were referring to earlier? Uh, no. No, earlier we no, were... I'm, talk- I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm asking Dr. P. Oh. Oh, um, well, the stabilizing uh, hormones uh, and, and the... Um, uh, nutrients and physical factors, uh, uh, thyroid hormone, progesterone, pregnenolone, uh, carbon dioxide, uh, for example, all tend to uh, stabilize around the uh, 70 to 90 millivolt uh, uh, resting potential. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the high energy state uh, really is a, a quiescent so, so the, the, the voltage yes, is uh, not uh, okay. active. It's a quiescent. Uh, yeah, my, my second question, yeah, uh, my, my, sec- 
My other question relates to um, Dr. Ling, I guess, who died last year, and I heard you speaking about him earlier. But I guess his AIH um, uh, hypothesis... Okay, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Hello, can you hear me? Uh, up, up to Ling's a, a, a association induction hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So, so essentially like a red blood cell has 300 million of these NPUs, so within one red blood cell. So essentially, are we talking about health that must be at, at some point analyzed not at the cellular level but at the NPU level? Um, I, no, no it, it, the cell in Ling's view is a, 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 unit, a unified phase uh, which um, doesn't doesn't have the uh, properties of a random solution, but a single unified uh, functional uh, sort of a personality uh, that goes through uh, uh, phasic changes that organize its function. Where do we get that? <laughs> All right, I think we've got some real problems here. Let's just uh, call this good for the evening. It's five to eight. Uh, I've got a quick question I wanted to ask Dr. Pete. Dr. Pete, I had, uh, had somebody send an email in um, who was concerned uh, with the fact that most cattle, uh, most milk dairy cattle, uh, are kept in a permanently pregnant state, and he was wondering... Uh, what what you thought perhaps was the potential estrogen load of milk. Um, I don't know if it's that relevant, but um, what do you think about um, milk and cows that are constantly in estrus? Uh, uh, there is an anti-milk lobby that <laughs> makes a lot of uh, publicity, uh, and that's one of their, their current ploys. <laughs> to direct people away from milk. But if you look at the consumption of milk over the last 50 years, yeah. uh, there's a tremendous decrease, yeah. even, even in children. Yeah. Uh, more and more, they're, they're shifting to yeah. uh, so-called no, uh, vegetable-based yeah. uh, milk substitute. Mm -hmm. uh, and that during this time, looking at the population, uh, you see a tremendous increase in premature puberty in girls mm -hmm. and a great increase in gynecomastia, the development of right. breasts in boys and men. Yep. Uh, so as the milk consumption estrogen decreases, related. estrogenicity in our... Yep. And the cows aren't kept in constant, uh, constant pregnancy because I have a well, no, no, dairy no. farmer friend. And he's, well, he's saying that basically they're pregnant, they're made pregnant, they deliver the cow, a baby calf, and then obviously they're producing the milk, but then they're automatically made pregnant again, essentially. No, they get a uh, drying off period. Well, <laughs> uh, one one of the reasons uh, milk tends to have an overall uh, protective effect against estrogen is that the estrogens that are in milk are in a, a detoxified form. Estrone sulfate, for example, hmm. is the least harmless mm -hmm. form of estrogen. Uh, not That's at it. all comparable to the. Uh, estrogens that are in the soy milk substitute. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, let's hold it there, Dr. Pete, because we've only got a minute and a half before the top of the hour. Thank you very much for joining us again. I'm sorry about the uh, 
the difficulty with the engineering and the sound and the feedback and everything else. So uh, for those people who've uh, tuned in and want to know more about Dr. Pete, he can be reached at www.raypeat.com, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. Uh, he's got lots of articles uh, fully referenced about many different pathologies, uh, most of which people are going to, going to look there will find certainly uh, information relevant to what they're searching for. And then also he's written some books and um, obviously he's lectured uh, fairly widely, but information is quite hard to find out about Dr. Pig because I think he's... Uh, I think he ends up um, doing a lot of uh, his own research and doesn't really doesn't really get around like he used to. But anyway, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Pete. And for those people who want to find out any more about us, uh, our business web address is westernbotanicalmedicine.com. Uh, my wife and I both produce uh, medicinal herb extracts uh, with GMP registered and inspected and audited and all that good stuff and um and certified organic certified organic yeah i've been doing it over 20 years too so uh for those people who've listened to the show and uh called in thanks for your questions until march of next uh third friday of next month in march uh good night good night thank you for listening <laughs>